Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're locked in to Stop, Look, and Listen on MyForecast.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Stop, Look, and Listen. I'm your host, Latroy Gardner. Uh, this week, we have a jack of all trades. He DJs, he produces, he's um, a host of the podcast, he's a business professional, a professor, and an author. We have Amani Roberts, aka the Amani Experience. Welcome to the show. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, Latroy. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no problem. Yeah, like I said, Amani does it all. So we're just going to kind of touch on as much as possible. But um, first off, like, just give us a snapshot into the life and times of Amani Roberts. I know <laughs> you was born and bred in Chocolate City. Chocolate City all the way. So I grew up in uh, right outside the city, D.C., uh, Silver Spring. Maryland, then went to Howard University, uh, where I majored in what hospitality and finance. And then I, all through college, I was working in hotels for Marriott International. Then I left and went and moved to, what was it? Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Miami, back to DC, and then out here to LA. And I've been here for a while now, almost 16 years in LA. Okay, wow. Yeah, so I have, I guess, you know, a tight relationship with HU alums, because I've had quite a few on the show over the years, uh, from Felicia Rashad to uh, Garfield Bright and uh, Eric Roberson as well. And then yeah. also tied to Chocolate City, had Big G from the Backyard Band. So, you know, just, just talk about that, that influence of go-go music. Ooh, ooh, we love go-go. And, you know, I came to appreciate go-go as I got older, because that's like synonymous with living in D.C., whether it be like Chunk Junkyard Band, Pleasure, Backyard Band, even Experience Unlimited, Chuck Brown, of course, the godfather of Go-Go. So big Go-Go fan. Every once in a while when I'm streaming or DJing, I have a special like Go-Go uh, set that I'll play. Always looking to find some of the newer artists, too. Uh, but that's DC right there in a nutshell. It's Go-Go music. Right, right. We call, it. we call it the crank. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Rest in peace to... The chart. On yeah. the chart. Yeah, mm-hmm. so like just talk about um, discovering your love for hip hop. I mean, we have the four core elements, the DJ and the graffiti, the MCN and the B Boys. What drew you to uh DJing? So discovering the love of hip hop, I remember growing up in the DC area, 
it was really one channel that used to play hip hop back in the day. Uh, it was UDC's College Station. It was ninety point one. I don't think they have it there anymore. And you know, it'd be Saturdays. Frank Ski, who now is a global international superstar DJ, he would, he was on. Um, I forget the channel letters, but he was on ninety point one. It was like a Saturday afternoon. He played the hip hop. You have to get your tape recorder ready to listen to the songs. I remember one of my favorite hip hop songs at the beginning was uh, UTFO Roxanne Roxanne. I actually still have the record for that that song over here somewhere. And that's kind of, you know, what I kind of felt in love with hip hop, so to speak. I really love hip hop, R&B music. And then just growing up in the era of hip hop, you know, I turned 50 years old this year. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just seeing it grow and evolve and become mainstream has been real interesting. And it continues to grow. So that's kind of where the love started and how it's maintained. Okay. So like what technique? Um took you the longest to master you feel so for me i was still i would say techniques in terms of djing like of course scratching and i'm still kind of a work in progress with some scratching whether you want to do like a one click flare two click flare chirps and things like that um you know i'm doing a little better with like the live blends i love doing some good live blends it's just i'm training my ear so that you try to get them so that they sonically stay in key and do that um so I would say scratching is one that's a work in progress. Like I could do pretty well, hold my own, but to really get the intense ones, that's that takes a lot of practice and time. So that's kind of something I'm working on. But beat matching got that down. I think you're always trying to figure out and learning about reading a crowd because no two crowds are ever the same. And that's like just that's that's like a muscle you have to always kind of read and, and exercise and practice. So it's like you're always learning. You never have, you know, reached the top or whatever, because there's always something to learn in the DJ world. And as long as you stay open to it, then you'll continue to improve and get better. Mm-hmm. So was there like a moment, especially with you growing up in D- D.C., I'm sure you've been able to see everyone um, where you saw a DJ, you know, working a party and you were just like, wow, this is crazy. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. That moment was one time we went to see uh, DJ Bismarcky. He was at Quigley's nightclub. Of course, that's no longer there now. That was like, I think, 17th and I Street, Northwest. And he just set the crowd off. It was amazing. He did this part of his set within his set where he played all these TV theme show songs, starting with like Facts of Life, Golden Girls, uh, all the songs, Fat Albert. And pe- we were just singing along to the theme show songs. And it was amazing. And so that was the time where I was like, yeah, I want to do what he's doing. But it took me a while to get the courage to go for it. At first, I didn't think that DJing was like a real legit career. I was incredibly wrong. It, it absolutely is legit. And um, that was the moment. I remember it very clearly. That was inspiration. And um, I'm just happy I had a chance to experience it. So that, that allowed me to get some more inspiration to keep going. Right. So I want you to you know touch on your experience in the corporate world. You know, let's talk about that, but then how you figured out a way to blend your love for DJing into everything you're doing in the corporate world. Yeah. So growing up with um, in Marriott, just learning about sales, being general manager of a hotel, so having to manage a P&L statement, doing an opening of a hotel, uh, then managing a team that is responsible for 16 or 17 hotels. I just got a really, really good foundation in terms of accounting, the sales process, working across uh, different leadership levels in the hotel, working with people on a regional level. It was just a really, really good training. And then 
you transfer that over to when you have your own business, at least you have an idea about like how to at least look and manage a P&L, understand if you're bringing in more than you're spending, forecasting, try to you know forecast what you're going to earn for the month, for the year, setting goals. So that all kind of set me up to at least have a good foundation to work on my own business and then using that to kind of identify what areas might not be working well, see which areas I can improve on, what I'm doing well at, and that translates now. And then I also um, do a lot of corporate events. And so that gives me some additional knowledge about being on the other side of working at a, you know, a venue that might be hosting corporate events, understand what they're going through, what is important for them and how they have to manage and work with their clients. So it all kind of fits together. And I'm fortunate to have the experience and then apply it to my current business right now. Okay. Yeah. So like I was saying before the interview, I think we kind of have like a similar path where I was in academia for about 15 years in librarianship. But throughout that entire process, I still wanted to, um, you know, sort of keep one foot in the water when it came to broadcasting. And eventually, as I guess my experience continued to blossom and I became more confident, then I was like, um, I think I'm at a point where I can take a shot and see see if I can leave academia and do my, pursue my passion full time. So for about the last two years, that's what I've been doing, um, producing podcasts for a tech company and still doing doing my thing with Stop, Look, and Listen and some of our other programs with Forecast Media on the side. So, yeah, I, I commend you for, you know, taking that leap of faith. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I got into academia, you know, later on in my career, um, but it was a godsend because, you know, when you, like you mentioned before, like a jack of all trades. I'm going to look up the proper quote because there's an ending to that quote, which people never really talk about, but it's true. Um, and when I went full-time DJing, I quickly found out that you need to diversify your income. And this was mm -hmm. further enforced during like the pandemic when people were getting laid off and furloughed and you had no money coming in. So I'm fortunate that I was able to kind of acquire a position at a university, Cal State University Fullerton, as a professor, and then adding on to that executive director of our Center for Entertainment, Hospitality Management. And that income allows me to get benefits, but it allows you like a nice foundation because uh, the freelance life, the DJ life can be very volatile. You may have a very, very busy first quarter of the year. Second quarter could be slow. Third quarter could be busy. It's just up and down, up and down, kind of like an EKG. And it can be very stressful. So you need to have something else that's working in the background so that you can maybe be a little bit more selective in terms of the opportunities that you want to decide to work on. You don't have to take every club gig, every bar gig, every wedding inquiry. You can be selective and stick to your boundaries and make sure that, you know, you're going to be pleased with the jobs that you're having a chance to work. So that's how academia has um, benefited me. Plus, I love it. I love teaching. The students respond well. It allows me to continue to learn how to read a room because, you know, DJs, we have to read a room with the music. Uh, when you're a professor, you have to read the room in terms of your students to keep them engaged. So I continue to practice, use that muscle. It uh, academia has allowed me to really hone my professional speaking, which I also do. And so it's just been beneficial in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're breaking? Um any stereotypes when it comes to the typical DJ, especially with all of your other skills that you bring to the table? 
hundred percent. Yeah, because most of the time people look at DJs as just maybe button pushers, or they're just um, spinning records, but have no knowledge about business. They maybe don't understand, you know, working with C-suite level executives. Um, you know, even having the aptitude to write a book to, you know, be a professor, create a syllabus, create an engaging class, like all these things that I'm doing. Um, most people wouldn't feel like, you know, DJs could, could do this. So I'm, I'm happy to show people that they're wrong. Um, that we are more than capable of doing more than just, you know, spinning records and rocking a party. We can be strong business people. We can be very emotionally intelligent, which is where reading a room comes in. And we are, you know, phenomenal marketers. We know how to do marketing and, growing our audiences, both in real life and on the social platforms. So yeah, absolutely. As moving forward, you know, that's why it's important for me not to just DJ. Like I can DJ and rock a party any day, seven days a week, but I can also teach, you know, a class of 40 students about um, Porter's five forces in terms of the business world and, you know, have mm -hmm. them engage and, and, and understand and comprehend the subjects. I can teach students about the difference between, you know, mechanical royalties, streaming royalties, the different two different sides of, uh, you know, recordings, whether it be the master recording, the songwriting side, the lyrics, like, yes, this I'm a DJ, but I can also do that. And then, you know, when I'm teaching, whatever, if, if we have a break, I can, you know, do a little mix for the class live also. So I that's a great question. And I agree 100 percent. Yes. Breaking the stereotype. Well, I mean, I think just based off of that answer, we naturally have to segue into your book, uh, DJ's Mean Business. You know, just just give us um, a synopsis of of the inspiration behind it, and you know what you know, buyers can expect. So I'll grab it for you. Like it's right here. The book is called uh, DJ's Mean Business. It takes you through the time slots of a DJ set, uh, starting at 10 p.m. A club in Hollywood. And, you know, when you first start, you know, at a club or a bar, you want to keep the people that are there there as long as possible. You want to kind of establish a connection, figure out what they're doing in business. You know, that's just kind of trying to identify your ideal client, your avatar. You continue on through the night. I'm going to skip a couple of 15 minutes, but you go to like 11 p.m. That's troubleshooting chapter. Something always goes wrong in the DJ booth, whether, you know, a speaker goes out, dusty needles, Internet issues, computer crashing. So how do you adjust on the fly, but the music can never stop in business? Maybe you thought that one of your products was going to sell, but then actually you're, you know, a different product that you didn't even expect is becoming more popular. Well, how do you shift and continue to maybe focus on this new product or this different product? But, you know, you still keep your business. You don't want to stop the business and then start again. You get to like prime time. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples I use is uh, the company Spanx. And they just continue to grow month over month, year over year. They came from nowhere. And that's how you do that in business. Also in the DJ life, you keep the dance floor packed, hit after hit, people sing along. You want to kind of cycle through, keep everyone happy, whether it be the bartenders, the patrons, people on the dance floor, just have them singing along. Then we get to maybe 1.30 in the morning. I'm a slow jam guy. I love good slow jams. Uh, I love to play some slow jams towards the end of the night when I'm in a club set, just to kind of, you know, let people who came to the club finish what they came to do. Businesses also use nostalgia, which slow jams brings up nostalgia, and they are very effective, whether it be a company like Old Spice or Nintendo or Adidas with Stan Smith. Like, a nostalgia is a very effective way. Even the music you hear in commercials, that's a way of tapping into nostalgia. 
Um, so that's one thirty. Then after that, the club's done. You pack up, you go home, but you always got to get feedback. How, what did you do well? How can you improve? So I used to drive for Uber, so I'd finish in the club, go outside, turn my little Uber meter on, and very many times I'd pick up people who were at the same club as me, pick them up, take them home. I say, oh, where were we, what would what'd you do tonight? What did you think of the club, the music? They give you feedback. Then right before I dropped them off, I'd be like, you know, I was a DJ tonight, so thanks for giving me the information. I appreciate it. And they would bug out or whatever. So that's feedback. And so that's kind of takes you through some of the chapters of the book. Um, also kind of has a nice little story underneath everything there. And um, that's the book right there. I love it. Working on the second one now. And um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the author part right there. <laughs> uh-huh. So what's the second one going to be about? So when I was in grad school, I went to grad school, um, finished at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And my thesis was on why there are no longer any black R&B groups. And that's what the next book is on. So we kind of dig into that topic, you know, growing up 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And up until about 2004 or five, once Beyonce left Destiny's Child, you notice that black R&B groups pretty much disappeared gone they're no more in like the billboard hot 100 hot top 20 charts and i'm not talking about the r&b charts i'm talking about the regular hot 100 charts that's all the music mm-hmm. you know we dominate black r&b groups used to dominate those charts no more so i'm talking about what happened why it happened and what's going to happen in the future okay yeah so i'm currently going through some of our old interviews from back in like 2009 2010 where we've where we interviewed um, like G.I. Jackson from H-Town, Jimmy mm-hmm. Jones from All for One, Garfield, like I mentioned before, from Shy, um, Slim from 112. And yeah. one of the questions we were asking was like, what happened to the R&B groups? And mm-hmm. and I think like in that era that she was talking about, 2005, 2006 was when um, American Idol and all of these Shows making a band, they were popular. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where it was almost like um, the groups weren't organically put together. They were sort of like a machine that, you know, just handpicked people you know, for whatever reason and put them in a group and it wasn't, you know, we didn't have that connection anymore. So that's just my personal take. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's mentioned there. It was so many, so many aspects. Like I'll give you the the quick little breakdown of the five kind of main reasons I, um, write about, you know, hip hop just continued to take over mainstream hip hop just got bigger and bigger. But the question is like, why can't hip hop and R&B music kind of coexist with the coexist with the labels and on the charts? And that's the kind of a question that people don't really want to talk about. So then you have some EDM music got to be really big and more popular and radio stations kind of thought that that was a more palatable genre of music to play. Because, you know, R&B music can be, you know, about love and sex and things like that. And maybe they want to stay away. That's why you see some artists, you know, shifted a a little bit to um, EDM music, like Usher had some EDM tracks. Mm-hmm. Rihanna had a bunch of EDM tracks. Um, so that's reason number two. 
Then, if you remember, in 96, they had the Telecommunications Act of 1996. President Clinton signed that into effect. And that was supposed to add more diversity to radio stations and add just more uh, opportunities for smaller people to have radio stations and play music. But the exact opposite thing happened. There was a big consolidation in the industry. You have the three main uh, radio companies like iHeartMedia, Humulus Media, Town Square Media. Um, they bought up all the radio stations and then they implemented kind of what was called like playlisting where you could be in like Miami or Charlotte or DC or LA or Denver. And pretty much you're going to hear the same songs that you would hear um, compared to back in the day when you have artists, like you mentioned, shy, they broke out of like WPGC home jams in DC. You'll have groups like um, not H town destiny child. They break out of Houston you know, and then they got big, very organically. Boys to Men out of like Philadelphia, TLC out of Atlanta. All these groups that are kind of, you know, 112 out of Atlanta. All these groups that kind of grew out of their geographic region and then grew from there. Well, when you have playlisting, that just kind of, that takes an element of that away. Plus, when you look at the board of directors for these companies, they're pretty much all old white males. They'll have a few people in there, newer. They've gotten a little bit of diversity from there, but these are the people that are deciding what songs are being played for the most part because they're behooving to advertisers. So that was the Telecommunications Act of 96. Then you had like um, the recession in like 07 to like 011. And I think the status like 54% across the country of mom and pop radio store, radio, not radio, record stores went out of business. You had like 45% of big box uh, record stores, like you would have Tower Records, um, The Wiz, where I grew up getting music from, those kind of uh, went out of business. And so if you remember, we used to go to those stores to do meet and greets with artists to sign, you know, and meet them and they would perform and that's all gone. So that's another aspect. Then the fifth reason, I think I got one, two, three, four, five would be you know, just earn media from black publications, whether it be Ebony, Essence, Jet, or Vibe. And at its peak, the total subscriptions for those publications were like 8 million monthly subscribers, which is a large amount. You know, now it's down to less than 750,000 and three of those publications are gone, no more. They have digital versions, but it's not the same. So when you add all that up, it's like an imperfect storm that really kind of hurt specifically black R&B groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm kind of just thinking out loud. So like how did how did the playlisting in the uh, Telecommunications Act, how did that impact DJs? Like as far as um, do you feel like you have more, more of a responsibility to um, introduce people to different types of music or then you know on the other side of the coin like that provide you all with that extra incentive to hustle kind of like how you do and and kind of have your hand on multiple cookie jars so i think with um djs radio djs had much less flexibility in terms of what they could play even like you know some of the mixes that they play for like the lunchtime mix or the afternoon mix like they were restricted much more than in the past because they still had to stick to the playlist. Um, they still had certain songs they had to play so many times a day. Um, and then when it comes to like DJs who are out and about playing music in like clubs and bars and lounges and for parties, like we, we still would have to 
Um, it was our responsibility to try to expose people to newer music, but it was a little more difficult because, you know, if they hear it in a party, but then they don't hear it on the radio, it takes a longer time for songs to kind of catch fire. Um, and so that, that makes it more challenging. You have to really kind of th- keep things top of mind. Then as you m- mentioned, like the shows like American Idol, Making the Band, even the emergence of platforms like YouTube. YouTube and people used to kind of sing and put their music on YouTube, but it was mostly like singular. It was mostly like singular artists. Like, you know, Justin Bieber is probably one of the first ones to, to sing and get really big on YouTube. And so that this whole social media era, everything kind of became a little bit more singular. Um, and then, you know, money wise, p- artists recognize that, well, if I can go solo and don't have to split my check three or four people, then that's easier. Uh, record label said, well, I, if I just have to promote one artist, we can save money on touring, on makeup, on uh, what's it called, like costumes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it all kind of added up to what we see now. Okay. All right. So um, how does um, social media like, play a role in your career and um, in the structure of your business model? Yeah, social media, that's a tough one because like you always have to be on and, you know, sometimes you just don't want to be bothered with like putting up posts on like Instagram and things like that. But that's kind of, you have to go to where the people are. Um, you know, even nowadays with like TikTok, that's a great music discovery kind of platform where you could find new songs that are on there that are, are really hot or even older songs that get big. So social media is like you have to be there, um, even live streaming. Like during the pandemic, I did like a lot of live streaming on like Twitch and kind of that platform and built an audience on there and was able to really meet DJs from all over the world. And now we're kind of outside more, so you spend less time on those platforms. But still, like live streaming is big, even for the business. Like business, you know, try to find business, you know, LinkedIn. That's another platform where you got to be active on there. You have to engage. Like there's so much you have to kind of pick and choose. Like right now Mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of grow like YouTube a little bit more because I think that one's got a little bit more staying power. So you just have to like, you can't do them all. It's really hard to do them all effectively. So you have to pick a few that you really want to focus on. Like I might use Twitter for like news and meeting people and trying to interview people or meet people through there. So if you have specific, you know, uses, even like Discord. Discord kind of came out of nowhere and got to be really big during the pandemic. I use it a lot for my school, my students. So if you can figure out specific uses for social media, that can kind of help you elevate your brand. But people always check and they want to see what you're doing. So for me, like the two main ones I use, like I'll share and post up a lot of things on Instagram. Um, it's just hard because, you know, unless you pay, you know, you, your posts might not be seen. LinkedIn's a little bit more open and organic. So I try to mix in things about like writing, DJing, speaking, students, things on LinkedIn. And that continues to kind of grow. And even live streaming, like I'll live stream maybe one day or two days a week on like Twitch. But sometimes I'll also have like a podcast that will stream on um, LinkedIn and YouTube. So I'm trying to kind of mix and blend and just come up with the uh, formula that works right for me, but social media is a beast. It's really hard to kind of keep on top of if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like I try to, I definitely try to focus on YouTube and LinkedIn for the most part, especially with the, the tech podcast. But yeah, I'll, I'll dibble and dabble on Instagram a little bit too. But yeah, like you said, it's just a little too much as far as time. <laughs> it's yeah. <a> beast. yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, yeah. I'm still figuring that one out. So yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about um, Amani experience. Talk about the podcast. 
for my podcast, in my experience, I would interview people who used to work in the uh, corporate space, but are left to do something more creative. And now since the pandemic, I kind of hit a little bit of a pause button. I'm trying to figure out how to come back with the podcast. But I have another podcast I do with a colleague of mine, Mandy Graziano, where it's called Adventures in Business. We just talk to entrepreneurs, people who are like C-suite level, running their own business to learn lessons from them, primarily in like the um, event space, kind of professional speaking. But we learn a lot. We interview people from all over the world. And um, it's because it's good. We live stream it. I think it's usually most Mondays at like 4 p.m. Eastern, one on the West. And that's been a good, like a really good addition. Working with like a co-host is fun and different. I learned a lot from her. So podcasting is like, it's like one of the most underrated networking tools out there. Like, you know, you and I, we're having a nice conversation today, you know, and so I'll remember this. I remember mm -hmm. you and then we see each other at a conference in the future. Um, but it also allows you access like people who it might be a little bit more difficult to get an in-person meeting with. You say we want to be on my podcast and you have like years, decades worth of podcasts that you worked on. Like that's that's a lot. So they'll be like, OK, you're serious. Yeah, I can come on your podcast and you'll meet people and talk to people. And I just think it's like a really, really futuristic way of like networking with people. And then you're creating some good content also. Dr. Todd McLean provides periodontal and dental implant services in two convenient locations. They offer over a decade of experience treating patients and appointments can even be scheduled in the evenings, weekends, or early mornings. Give them a call in Chapel Hill at 919-537-9774 or in Durham at 919-484-8338 or visit them online at gumsandimplants.org. Yeah, we were doing radio at first, and then I'd say about 2012, um, the decision was made to shift uh, The Good Old Boys, which was a show with myself and three friends, um, from a radio program to podcasting. And it's just blown up since then. It's crazy. It's like I was at a podcast um, conference in Vegas a few months ago, and and, you know, just the amount of revenue that's being generated is astronomical. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if you stick with it and consistent, it can definitely pay off both with financially and then, you know, business wise with making connections. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one more question regarding DJs, like um, what does the post COVID world look like for DJs? Is it back to how things were prior to 2020 or a lot of the tools that was used during the um, pandemic, um, is that what's going to be used moving forward or is it going to be a mix of both? I think it'd be a mix of both. I think, you know, things are coming back. It's a little different now. Like um, I would say maybe most, you know, 85% back, like a lot of the parties and things are, are busy. Maybe not as busy as it was before, I think a lot of DJs, you know, that are thinking ahead will add in some live streaming elements from their gigs if possible so that people who maybe still don't feel comfortable coming out can still experience it. I think that's what we learned during the pandemic that will carry us through. I think a lot of DJs maybe are being a little bit more selective in terms of where they perform and, and what they're doing. But for the most part, we're kind of back to like before um, pandemic times, but just, you know, maybe being a little bit more selective. Um, and 
I think you'll see bars and restaurants and clubs are still making some kind of architectural uh, changes to make things a little more spacious. People are using outside spaces significantly more so people can spread out. I think that's a trend you'll see continue, which is very wise. And I just think that people are a little bit more cognizant and just trying to be flexible with their space, which we were forced to do during the pandemic. And they're just going to continue to do that moving forward. Okay. All right. So um, with the minor experience, you also uh, do some coaching, you know, with businesses and corporate clients, you know, just, just talk about why, you know, using this technology, the live streaming, the podcasting, um, you're DJing. Why, why is that so important to team building and um, just some of the other resources that it, it provides? So like I'll coach people um, and work with clients on who want to learn how to DJ, uh, who want to learn how to live stream or podcast. Cause I think the barrier to entry is very low for DJing. People can go to, you know, buy a controller for a hundred dollars, $120 and start to build their libraries and DJ. So you try to, you want to, you know, equip them with the proper tools and skill sets. So if they're going to learn how to DJ, they know how to do it properly because we mm-hmm. want to respect the craft. We want to make sure that people aren't just kind of pressing buttons and not really understanding beat matching and blending and song selection and, you know, how you're looking when you're performing. So that's kind of the goal with teaching people about DJing. Um, then some of the team building that I do is like, you know, uh, I'll mix a DJ lesson in with um, a team building activity, which can be very effective. And we kind of go through DJ names, walkout songs. We do some exercise on the microphone, which is also, you know, an aspect of DJing that people kind of scares people in terms of being on the microphone and talking. That's something that I improved on tremendously during the pandemic because you have to talk to the people through the microphone. There's no one in front of you but a camera and maybe a green screen behind you. So that um, I also do like, you know, a lot of professional speaking and I'll relate growing a business or growing your career to a DJ set, which is a really fun talk, Um, you know, and then another activity I'll do is how to help people unlock their creativity and we'll use music there. We use, we, we use some inspiration from Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way to take people through this exercise a couple hours that really helps people unlock their creativity. So those are kind of some of the team building activities, professional speaking, and it pretty much all is coming from the home base of uh, the lens of a DJ. Mm-hmm. All right. So how do you balance it all? Like, there's <laughs> so much on your plate. And I know, I know because I'm, you know, also kind of doing the same thing as far as a mix of freelance work, uh, coaching, you know, uh, you know, full-time or part-time gigs. Um, yeah, just, you yeah. know, for, for finding DJs in this space that are looking to diversify their income, you know, kind of coach, coach them through what it took for you to get to this point. Yeah, I think um, you have to bucket your time. And so traditionally, like, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays would be like my teaching day where I'm actually going to campus teaching and then maybe on Wednesday do a little prep. And then when I'm not teaching, you know, in the evenings, because most of my classes are usually in the mornings, Tuesday is a longer day. That's pretty much all dedicated to like teaching. But then the other times um, you have to follow up on potential inquiries for the DJ life. Um and you're maybe doing some performances for DJing, 
you know, in the past, I was a uh, president of a pretty large uh, association based in Southern California. So it's just, it's a lot. It was a lot. Just um, kind of budgeting your time where say maybe from like eight o'clock in the morning to like 10 o'clock, I'm going to be working on this. Then from 10 o'clock to noon before lunch, I'm going to be working on this. So you really kind of have some structure. Some people say you're being rigid, but I call it being disciplined because you have to, otherwise things will fall through the cracks. Um, and so if you can bucket your time and really focus. So like for me, Really, it just comes down to like, like teaching and like DJing is the two main things. Then I'll have maybe some, a client on the weekend for coaching DJing or a client during the week. Those are two main things. Now I have a couple of projects to work on, like writing the second book. So I have to dedicate some extra time to write maybe on the weekends, evenings, things like that. Um, this past last week, I had a gig in Cancun, Mexico. So leading up to that, I had to prepare for the gig. Then I was there at the gig, so I pretty much was just focused on that gig there. Then I come home. I had a wedding to do that next. I got home on a Friday. I had a wedding to do on that Saturday. So what happened is that I had prepared for the wedding three days before I left for Cancun. So when I got back, I had all my things together. I just had to kind of rest, really, and then prepare and load up and go. So if you can kind of get in the habit of looking ahead, preparing, like if I'm looking ahead now, I have a trip going, I'm going to a conference in the middle of July, so I'm going to prepare for that in the next few weeks. I had an event last night, which is like networking, which will kind of help me get some gigs for the future. Um, it just kind of all flows and just bucket your time. Like this evening, I'll do some writing because I try to write every day. I got to respond to some leads. So it's just trying to keep you things. And then you want to try to have some fun and live life too. So try to stop at a certain hour and just come back to it the next day. It's very difficult, but I've got to pretty good system in mind. We're on summer break now from school, so I don't have to worry about grading or teaching. But once that amps up, you have to adjust your schedule and just really be disciplined with your time. Okay. All right. So what do you do to kind of escape from it all? <laughs> good question. I like to read. So I read like fiction, you know, that helps, especially in the evening times heading to bed or if I'm traveling. Um, go for walks. That's something I've kind of added this year that's really been good, whether like a 20 or 30 minute walk in the nighttime. It's fabulous. Really, really, really effective. Um, and then, you know, I'll pick and choose different TV shows to maybe binge watch during dinner, after dinner. Um, try to visit with friends, you know, during the weekdays, evenings. I play soccer one day a week on a team. So I have different activities that help me kind of at least get a little bit of normalcy travel. Like I'm going to go on a vacation in a couple of weeks for the first time in a while to kind of get away and do things. So just try to pick and choose different moments where I can kind of unwind, not have to chase email all the time or, you know, the slacks or the discords and just try to unwind and do that. I'm still a work in progress, so I haven't perfected it yet. I'm trying to learn new tricks and new things, but I think this vacation will help. Go on a writing retreat, that'll help. Um, and yeah, let's try to figure it out every, every week. <laughs> That's the biggest challenge of it all. Finding, yes. finding time for self. Yes. Yes. I think that the number one, you know, and then if you know, like I'm currently not in a relationship, but if you're in a relationship, you got to definitely make enough time for that too. And so you're not like, um, being non-attentive. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's just a constant practice. It's a constant practice. What's working well, what's not working and try to adjust on the fly. Right. What's something about you that people would find most surprising? <laughs> uh, I know how to salsa dance. Good salsa dancer. I love pancakes. 
Um, <laughs> those are two things people are like, huh, what? And, you know, I'm a sucker for romantic comedies, you know, a hopeful romantic. I think people are surprised by that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right, Imani, what's next for you? What's on that vision board? Uh, I think really the focus is to try to finish this book. That's the main focus now. After that, uh, I want to create a course and a community where I'm helping to close the knowledge gap between musicians and artists and kind of like the music industry in terms of the labels and all that. Because if you look at it, there's a very big knowledge gap between what and this is new musicians, musicians who've got five to 10 years of experience, even veteran musicians, the knowledge about how the music industry works and then you know, the labels, because the labels kind of know and they, they understand. But I want to be able to equip people with the proper information so they can decide, do I sign with the label? Do I not sign with the label? Do I work with a, um, a company that maybe will collaborate, collaborate with me in terms of my master's in marketing and things like that? This is a huge knowledge gap in the music industry. You see things all the time in the news where artists are trying to get out of their deals because they signed bad deals and things like that. So being the passionate educator that I am, I just want to help educate people so they can make the proper decisions because I'm pro artist. I just want, you know, the artist to be able to live and continue to create and not have to stop creating and rob the public of their gifts because they run out of money or they get burned out or they get burned in terms of signing a bad deal. So that's after the book is done. I'll kind of work on that um, and then just continue to DJ at bigger better events um, and do more professional speaking. So I think the top three things that are on the list are finishing the book, doing more professional speaking, and then creating that course and community to kind of uh, shrink the knowledge gap in the industry. All right. Yeah, that's needed. I mean, we hear every day about artists and, you know, signing the contract. Obviously, the I'd say the one that's near and dear to my heart is the De La Soul situation. It, it was heartbreaking when, you know, True Boy passed away right at the point of them getting yeah. their freedom, yeah. getting, their, getting their masters back. So got their masters back. And then finally, they get their music on streaming platforms. Not that they're going to earn a lot of money initially, but at least they have that income stream coming in. But he passed away like right before. Um, even like the story like Anita Baker. Like it took mm -hmm. her a long time to get her masters back and she had to get the assistance of like an artist. I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, the artist that helped her. Um, I'll look it up. But yeah, like the stories are just countless, even, you know, and, and his methods could be a little crazy. But back in the day when Kanye was upset at the deal he signed, so he publicly showed he urinated on his contract. Now, that might have been the proper tactics to do. But he was probably right that he signed a bad deal and he felt like he should be he should have gotten a bigger, better deal. Um, he did have some truth to that. So it's so needed. And I'm just, you know, I'm here to serve. So I'm trying to help and, and create some things to help educate people. Um, because not all labels are bad, but you just need to have the knowledge so you can be properly uh, equipped to make the best decision. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think from the outside looking in the way that um, Kendrick Lamar's um, deal kind of came to an end, it seemed like it was amicable. And, you know, they got they gave him his blessing to, you know, start his own thing. So yeah. if more more labels could be like like punch, then that would be great. Yeah. But, Chance, um, Chance Rapper is another good example of like who's kind of worked the independent 
um, game and done well. Uh, even Brent Fiaz, I hope I'm saying his last name right, he's a good example. He recently partnered with a, a great label in terms of collaborating. But, you know, there are examples out there and we just need to share more. And maybe, you know, you need to work with someone for a distribution deal or you need mm -hmm. to work with people for like the touring or getting your thing, your music on the radio. But a la carte methods might work a little better than traditionally signing away everything. Right. Yeah, I think signing with the marketing team and just doing it independently would make the most sense nowadays, especially with how much traction you can get on social media. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. All right, Amani. So as we prepare to close, feel free to plug whatever you need to plug. I know it's a laundry list. <laughs> well, you know, socials, it's at Amani Experience. A, it was a Mary, A, it is an NCI, the word experience, all one. That'll get you on like the Twitter, the YouTube, the Instagram, even twitch.tv backslash Amani Experience. Um, the book, DJ's Main Business, is in Amazon. You can also go to my website and get a signed copy. Um, and then, you know, follow me on LinkedIn, Amani Roberts. You took type in Amani space Roberts space DJ and that'll, that'll pull me up right there. Um, if you're looking for someone to talk at maybe a conference that you're hosting or that you're attending and you want, you know, I can come talk about unlocking creativity or, you know, if it's a music related conference or a culture related conference, I can talk about the R&B groups. That's an excellent discussion to have. Um, so yeah, just hit me up. Uh, you know, I'll respond back and create a conversation and just, you know, thanks for allowing me to kind of be here and share what I'm working on and some of my experiences in, in this DJ life. Um, but I appreciate it, Latroy. Oh, no problem. Uh, Chaco City's own, the Amani <laughs> experience. Yes. Amani Roberts, it's been a pleasure, sir. I like um, make sure you check him out at ImaniExperience.com. Like you said, get his book, DJ's Mean Business. Uh, check out the podcast, two podcasts. Yeah. And, you know, just just be on the lookout for any and everything that's coming down the pipe. And for Stop Looking Listen, I'm your host, LaTroy Gardner. See you next week. Peace and blessings.